Critical Gardener presents Shauna and Dorothy Doby, the editor and publisher of Canada's local gardener magazine, I Here For You. Hello, it's Shauna Doby here with Canada's local gardener podcast. I'm here today with my mother, Dorothy Doby. And we're talking to Kelly Leesk today from Prairie Originals Garden Centre. Is that the full name? Yeah, Prairie Originals Native Plant Nursery. There we go. Uh, And that's located just outside of Winnipeg. That's right. Yeah, we're just near Selkirk. Okay. So this is a a garden center nursery that's been around for, oh gosh, about 30 years. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, since 1990. But it looks like you weren't even born then, Kelly. Actually, I'm the same age as the business. That's the same age as the business. Well, perfectly. Grew up together, right? Yeah, <laughs> but but good for you because that's really great to know that there are people that are still going to carry on with such a great pursuit because what a wonderful original idea. So what? Yeah, uh, for our listeners who may not know, uh, Prairie Originals is um, it's a native plant nursery uh, of Manitoba plants, and a lot of them are from across Canada or across the prairies. And uh, now it was begun by Shirley Froelich. That's right. Yeah. So Shirley started the company, yeah, back in mm-hmm. 1990 and, and um, yeah, had this brilliant idea to um, try and make native plants available as part of the nursery industry. So she went out and collected seed from the wild and then she propagated those seeds so that she could then harvest seed from her own place instead of collecting from the wild so that she could grow plants to sell. And in 1990, that was really early for that, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, she was definitely like at the at the forefront of the of the wave. I'd say Um, there's there's not there still isn't a lot of native plant nurseries in Canada, um, but she was one of the early ones. Right. Um, And so, how did you get involved in the business? I just got really lucky. Yeah, um, I always had a had an interest in nature. I always liked plants, um, but wasn't really considering horticulture as a, as a career option. Um, I had been traveling a little bit and was looking for a summer job for when I came home. And I happened to hear about uh, that Shirley was hiring for the summer. And I thought I didn't know that much about native plants and I didn't have nursery experience. I had gardening experience, but I didn't have work um, like as a working in the industry. And um, I was just very intrigued and excited about the possibility of what I could learn from her. So I was very happy when I got the job. And um, yeah, when I, it was originally just a summer job. And um, I just kind of fell head and heels over head over heels in love with with native plants and growing. And and um, at that point, Shirley was looking to retire and looking for someone to take uh-huh. things over. And so it was um, it just lined up very nicely that um, I was in a position in life where I was open to taking on a big new project. and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the stars kind of all aligned, and, and here we are. That's fantastic. And you know what? Native plants, I think most people don't even know what they are. They, they, they have them in their gardens, but they don't realize that they're actually native to this part of the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. There, I mean, like in, in Manitoba, we have a very badly damaged ecosystem. There's there's not a lot of tall grass prairie left, so mm-hmm. um, it's, a, it's a really special and important opportunity, I think, to plant native plants in our gardens because we we like to think that, you know, nature exists out there somewhere and that it's Mm -hmm. probably fine. But in reality, our prairies have largely been converted to, to developed land or agriculture. And, um, and so these plants at this point need a little bit of help to, um, to make sure that we keep them going. And um, you're right that they, they aren't something that a lot of people have a chance to encounter in their daily lives. And so you might not be terribly familiar with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them have been domesticated. So you think about things like echinacea, for example, or Joe Pieweed, or, you know, some of the, the wood lilies, people grow them in their gardens and they have no idea that they were actually native to this part of the world. Yeah, that's true. It's, you know, it's kind of funny. I have, um, so because I came into the industry sort of from a, maybe a different um, route than other people might, um, I've had a kind of a backwards experience to what a lot of my customers have. Like a lot of my customers come to visit and they're like, oh, I had no idea that wild mm-hmm. columbine is a native plant um yes. and then i i have the opposite experience where sometimes i go visit other nurseries and i was like oh i have no idea that there's so many different cultivars of wild columbine <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's right that's right now uh i was going to mention that that of course what you guys do use you, you don't have cultivars of anything is that correct 
That's right. Yeah. So we don't do any plant breeding. All of our seed sources came from the wild in Manitoba originally. Now we do all of our own seed propagation, but we don't do any selective breeding. So we try to keep a, a good genetic diversity in the population that we're growing. All of your own seed. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's, um, there's sort of two parts to that. So on, on the one hand, it's, because it's a because it's necessary. Like if I wanted to, if I had a list of 100 native plants that I wanted to grow, there's I wouldn't be able to source those seeds in Canada from other producers. So it was necessary to just produce them ourselves. But then through doing it for our own propagation, then we have been able to expand our production, make them available for other people to to purchase seed from us as well. Right. So do you do you do commercial production of seed as well? We do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we're still small scale, but we're definitely working on scaling up. So mm-hmm. there's more and more demand all the time. And, and it's very frustrating to me when people come to me and say, you know, I have 10 acres of land. I'd love to see it to prairie. And I'd be like, I, that's a great project. And I, you have my full support, but I can't, I, we don't produce that much seed at this point. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when I don't have to turn anybody down and I can just say, yes, I can help you with your project. But it brings up another really interesting question to me. And that is how do you have all the right ecosystems to be able to grow these plants? Because many of them are very specialized. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. And there are, there are lots of different kinds of native plants that do grow in different niches. Um, and I think what I've learned is like the microclimates are so real. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I'm, I'm, I'm still growing things at Shirley's place. I'm, I'm leasing some land from her to, to do our seed production and have a retail shop at her place. And um even it's a five acre property. And even just on this property, there's spots in the field that are just that little bit more low lying. So they do capture that little bit more water or there's spots where we've, we've amended some beds with, with extra compost and sand and things like that to try and try and tweak the soil a little bit so that it's better suited to certain species. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how you do find those little, those little spots and you do try and line up the needs of the plant with, with the, what the site has to offer. Um, and it's incredible how, how many different little patches you can find, um, in one spot, but it's definitely something I'm, I'm excited to, to delve into a little bit more. Like I, we are going to be moving in the next few years. I have purchased land and we'll be moving the shop and just taking a little while to get all the infrastructure set up, but we're growing out there already. Um, I'm really excited about like putting in a pond so they can grow more wet living species or even getting, you get into some aquatics and things like that. And um, yeah, creating all these little niches and microclimates to be able to support all this diversity. I'm a former member of the Conservancy Board, um, Conservancy uh, Canada. And a few Mm -hmm. years ago, we went down to the southern part of Manitoba and we were looking for the the prairie uh, fringed orchid, the white prairie fringed orchid. And it was very wet that year. And that's, I guess, seems to, you know, so how do you replicate that kind of um, condition? to be able to grow some of these plants that are sort of ephemeral and don't come out all the time. Yeah. I mean, like there are limits to what we can grow. You do, you do like, it's the same as with any garden. I think this is something that comes up for gardeners that the, the reality of the importance of the right plant, the right place. Um, and you can push it to a certain extent, but there are, there are limitations to yeah. that. Um, but on the flip side of that also, like we, we grow a huge diver, like a fairly huge diversity of plants. We work with about 150 different species in a year. And, and because the, you know, the climate, not the climate, but the weather changes from year to year, you get dry years and you get wet years. And and since we're growing so many different kinds of plants, it, there's never a year where 100% of the plants are doing their best ever, but every year there's some plants that do really great and it changes from year to year. So it balances out. Mm -hmm. Do you garden yourself? It, at your home? Yes, a little bit. <laughs> I'm at the shop a lot. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know about that. <laughs> uh, the growing season comes and I hit the road. <laughs> um, but do you now in your own garden, do you have all native plants? I have a, a variety of things. I'd say um, like starting off, I was definitely, you know, I, the, the, gar- the plants, the perennials that are in my gardens now, some of those came from like the, the garden club plant sales, stuff like that, or just things that we were trying kind of before I knew about native plants. So I haven't like scrapped all the plants that were in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, as you know, spaces become available, I just incorporate in more native plants. Um, and so it's, you can totally do that. You can mix different plants together. Um, you can mix herbs or perennials, wildflowers, put it all together. Why not? So that's, that's the way I feel about it. So that's good to hear I, that you're not um, very, the word that's coming to mind is Catholic about it. And I mean that with a small C. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not like I'm not a native plant purist. I think that there's space in the garden for all kinds of different things, but I I like to think that there's space in in gardens for native plants too. Um, So at this point, whenever I add something to the garden, it usually is a native plant unless it's something that's like culinary. You know, I kind of tried to grow, I, I, I collected the seed. In fact, I think I bought a plant from Northern Bedstraw. And I mean, I love that plant. It reminds me of my childhood, the smell of the, the scent is so gorgeous. Uh, and it just wasn't very successful. <clears throat> Do you have that kind of issue when you when you give these, you know, sell the seeds to people? Um, where That's not always successful? Yeah, like you give them an instruction about where to plant this and don't try to plant northern beds on a normal bed because that's not where it wants to be sort of thing. Yeah, like we definitely try and give people guidance because we, we want we want the plants to survive. You know, we put a lot of effort into, <laughs> into growing them. We want them to live. We want them to survive um, and to do well in people's gardens. So the way we have things set up at the nursery, actually, if people come in shop here, we have the plants organized by growing conditions. So, you know, oh, then if you have a sunny, dry spot in your yard, this is the section that you shop from. Yeah. from if you have like a, a wet shady spot this is a section that you shop from um so then but i also know from personal experience that there is a temptation to try and push that and mm-hmm. i've definitely planted things in my own garden and told me that are you know water loving and told myself well it'll it's fine i'll just <laughs> I'll water, water it all the regularly. time it'll yeah. be fine and as it turns out that was uh not something that i was actually able to keep up with and so those plants did not survive so that was a, a bit of a lesson for me and, and sometimes sometimes it works out you can push it and and you know, the plants are tough and resilient and they can find their way. And, and sometimes it just isn't the right condition and it doesn't work. But we try and, you know, yeah. encourage people to okay. pick the right plants for the right place to get them off to a good start. So I had that trouble with with Joe Pieweed and I put it in too dry a place. So now I finally found a nice wet place for it. But last year, even though it's usually it's a low place in the garden and it usually gets pretty wet, it just died. Will it come back, you think, this year? It's possible. Yeah, there's definitely some plants that um, will have as part of their survival mechanism in really dry years, they'll just go yeah. dormant. Um, mm-hmm. So that can happen. You're not very positive about my Joe Pye though, huh? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, I mean, I can't predict the future, but I, I mean, I, I would have hope I'd say. Yeah. It's always a plant that you love the most. It doesn't want to grow for you and you try it everywhere. And are. <laughs> <laughs> um, this bed straw that you were talking about, what did you call it? Northern bed straw, but it's northern all- bed straw is that the one that's that looks an awful lot like um, woodruff, sweet woodruff. It looks a little bit like I don't know. It's very tiny flowers. It's also called my lady's bed, my lady bed straw, because the legend has it that it was planted in the in the manger with Jesus and the, the beautiful scent. Uh huh. But uh, it grows here. We call it northern bed straw here, and it's just a little tiny plant, and it's it's just the scent you grow it for because it it's oh, well, it's pretty, but it doesn't you know. It's a nice filler. Yeah. Um, I don't think there are any cultivars of Joe Pye weed, are there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are. There's like, um, there's, I think, a little Joe and there's some like really tall ones. Oh, Um, right. Of course. I've heard of little Joe. Mm -hmm. Now, I was looking at your website before we came together for this discussion. um, And and I got planning all the things that I'm going to plant when I move to Winnipeg. Um, but, uh, tell me, um, well, what's your favorite? It's yeah. always, you know, I should have like a, I should have an answer to this because people ask me this yeah. regularly and it's always a hard question. And it's, and it, <laughs> I um, couldn't answer it either. It's a tough one. Yeah. I had a, a funny experience a few years ago. I had a new staff member and it was funny because her favorite plant changed every week, depending on what was yeah. blooming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I don't know. Like I, I think some of the ones that are like really near and dear to me are, are things like like milkweeds. I really love. I think because they the plants themselves are beautiful. They smell so good. Um, I also really like them because of, because of my interactions with them. Like I I um, by the time the seed ripens, um, it's usually August, and um, and they're a seed that um, is fairly labor intensive to clean, and it has to be done fairly soon after the after the pods are harvested. Um, so in August, it means that I get a chance to like sit down for an hour or two every day and I can you know, watch TV or listen to music or whatever while I clean the milkweed seeds. Um, so I like that they give me a break. Um, uh-huh. I also, I mean, they're also the, the host plants for butterflies, for monarch butterflies. Yeah. And so I think that they, um, they create this wonderful opportunity for education to, to just connect, 
to connect the idea um, for people between the importance of, of native plants and insects and how they're very interconnected to each other. And um, there's a, this host plant relationship is fairly common and, and the monarchs just create a really like easy to see example of it. So monarch butterflies rely on, on milkweeds as their host plants. It's the only types of plants that their caterpillars are able to eat. And so if there isn't any milkweed, there won't be any monarchs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, I feel like it's a very empowering plant because there's a lot of big, scary problems in the world that it's very easy to feel like it it's easy to feel disempowered and like there's nothing you can do about it. But um, monarch butterflies were recognized in 2016 as an endangered species in Canada. Um, And it's an amazing thing to be able to create habitat just by planting the right plants for them. And when you actually find those eggs and you see those caterpillars, you get to watch the metamorphosis happen. Like that is, it's really amazing. Um, Yeah. I think it's just, yeah, it's it's an exciting thing to be a part of. There's a wonderful milkweed called, um, um, hairy, hairy balls, and it's uh, because of, because of the pods being round. But they, the, they, I, I mean, they're hard to get. I had to order one from. I don't think they grow here in Manitoba particularly, but I did get some seeds a few years ago. And man, the butterflies just flock to it. I hadn't been able to catch them with my regular, you know, um, my regular plants from home. But man, they really like the hairy balls, and they're so cool. So if you get a chance, you grow those in your, you know, your your imported garden. But they're really neat. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take a little break and uh, visit the folks back at head office. To grow or not to grow? These are the questions. But to find all the answers, why not subscribe to Canada's local gardener magazine? All the right ideas in all the right places. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Stay up to date as we all grow together. And we're back. Now, during the break, uh, we were just talking a little bit about the lictrum, and you have one variety that you stock. Is that correct? Yes, it's the lictrum dazacarpum, which is tall meadow rue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I really like it. It's it's a for me, it's a plant that has a very cottagey kind of feel. I love the texture of the leaves and the color of the leaves. The, the flowers themselves are quite small and quite dainty, but they also have this kind of I don't know, foamy kind of aspect yeah, to them. They're, yeah. they're really neat. So that's the one with the little tiny flowers, isn't it? Kelly? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, I yeah, also have the one with the fuzzy flowers that are really that's really interesting too. Cool. And I, I'm you know they're. Um, it, they really stand out in the garden and, they, you know, they're quite, quite large, quite tall. But I think the one you've got is really tall, isn't it? Like yeah, it's, yeah it, it, it's, a, it's one that likes a little bit of moisture. So in a dry year, it's short, but in an average to, to wet year, it'll be quite tall. Like it could oh. be up to four or five feet. Yeah. Is Philopendula native here too? Uh, Philopendula. Um, That's the one that gets the, I mean, it is, it grows, in, but I'm not sure it grows in Manitoba, but I know it grows in Canada. And it gets the big sort of, uh, well, it's a it's, metal. It's like a dryland, um, uh, that other one you were talking about, Joe Pieweed. Yeah. Uh, okay. It gets big, fluffy pink pl- uh, flowers. And there are several varieties, that can, but that's the one that grows on the edge of a meadow and by beside the, the, the bush. And okay. it's absolutely a glorious plant. It spreads a lot. So it's probably really, it is probably native, but I'm not sure it's native to Manitoba particularly. But you know, yeah, we've got 150 varieties. I mean, that's a huge number in itself. Yeah, well, we grow flat, like wildflowers, grasses, shrubs, and vines. Um, mm-hmm. And there's about a 700 or so species of plants in Manitoba that are native to Manitoba. But some of those, of course, would be like up north on the tundra and yeah, wouldn't grow yeah. here. So there's definitely a few more that are on my hit list. But um, ones that I want to find seed for and, and learn how to propagate. But, um, um, but yeah, we've got a pretty decent starting point so far, I think, in terms of our selection. I, I was excited to see that you have pussy toes. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> yes, they're so cute. Um, pussy toes, are, they're another host plant as well for butterflies. They're the mm. host plant for painted lady butterflies. Um, and yeah, I love them. They're just like a really lovely low ground cover. They get cute little flowers in spring. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's a few different kinds of, of pussy toes that are native in Manitoba. We just have one of them. It's one of the, the larger um, leaved ones. But there's also mm-hmm. one that has like really tiny little leaves. Um, there's also one that has pink flowers, which I haven't seen, and we, we don't grow that one, but I'm, that would be one that I'd be curious to, to try growing. 
that would be lovely. I uh, I had pussy toes years and years and years ago when I started my garden, and it went the way of all other plants in my garden. <laughs> I haven't seen it since. It doesn't seem to last that long because I've had them too, and then and maybe you know not all perennials are long lived. That's true. No, that's true. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because sometimes people have this idea that perennial means immortal. Um, yeah. <laughs> every plant has its lifespan. Right. But we grow so many things here. One of the things I, I think many people don't realize is lupin. And I've seen them grow wild in the fields out in the eastern part of Manitoba. And they're just absolutely gorgeous. And they will self-sow. So it's a wonderful thing to have. But but you don't you don't stock any lupins, do you? No, and I don't know that they're actually native to Manitoba. I think they might be one that has been introduced and sort of naturalized. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a few different examples of plants like that. That um, and this is where what's a what's a native plant can be a little bit yeah. of, a, of a it's an unclear concept sometimes. Of just because it's growing in the wild doesn't necessarily mean that it's native. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true too. But it Tell does me. grow in, in in just in the fields, and uh, some wonderful sight to see as you drive by. Oh, oh yeah. now you have that red lily. What uh, it's called the red something lily, isn't it? Yeah, it's got a bunch of different names: red lily, wood lily, um, yeah. prairie lily, western red lily. And I remember one time when I was young, Mum, we were um, out driving to where we go camping all the time, and there was a big field full of them. Yeah. Remember that? And yeah. I got out and we picked a bunch. <laughs> It, it was just so exciting to see uh, that it, it hadn't happened before and it hadn't happened since, but that year. Well, when I was a kid, they used to grow everywhere. You know what we found one time, though, when we were driving up towards uh, Beaver Creek, which is up along the lake, and I saw them in, in the ditch, and we, I made me stop them. I stopped the car. I want to get out, ran down the ditch, and it was that. It was the, now, what the heck is it called? It's, the, it's a fringe flower again. Oh, oh, I hate it when that happens to me. <laughs> But it's a, <laughs> you don't know what we're talking about, do you? It's on the tip of my tongue. I'll come back to it. But when you, you, when, you across, when you come across a wildflower that you haven't seen, you're, you're just mm-hmm. so excited. That's so true. Yes. Yeah. And they are so beautiful. You, you just can't imagine how something, it's terrible to say, how something exists naturally. Yeah, but they do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing you have is a lot of, um, oh, let me ask you about the strawberries, mm. the native strawberries. Do do people grow them as a vegetable thing or is it mostly for ground cover? Um, I'd say like they, they aren't heavy fruit producers. They do produce yeah. fruit in it. And it's like, the, if you imagine like one of those giant strawberries that you find at the grocery store, if you take mm-hmm. all of the flavor of that giant strawberry and pack it into a tiny berry, that's what, that's what the wild ones are. Like they're, they're small, but like so flavorful. Um, but they, yeah, they're, they're not like ever bearing. They don't produce through the whole season. Um, so it is, yeah, it's just kind of a special treat when you get them. Um, so people probably like for the function in the garden, you'd use them more as a ground cover than as like a, as a real food, food producer. Um, but they do make a great ground cover. Yeah. Birds love, birds love them. I grow some and the birds get them always, but once in a while, I'll just find a couple that they're really a treat. Mm -hmm. And you have uh, native raspberries. Yes. Now are those better fruit producers? Uh, I'd say better than the strawberries. Yeah. Um, and they're, yeah, again, like really delicious though. Um, but they, they, they're less productive than the cultivated varieties that have been cultivated for the purposes of being heavy fruit producers, right? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. Every, everything. But what about, okay, everything is with the possible exception of Saskatoon's. Would that be your outright? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, you might be right about that. There, like, there are some some pretty heavy producers of, of Saskatoon's, but the wild ones are pretty solid too. They actually do produce quite a bit of berries, which is awesome because they're so delicious. <laughs> and when I was a kid, I pit, used to pick raspberries, wild raspberries, and they're a great attractant for mosquitoes. <laughs> I became very immune to mosquitoes because I was fascinated to watch them suck the blood out of my arms. I thought that was so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I became inoculated, so I didn't bother me like people bother most people. But yeah, really do like raspberries. Hmm? If you get away from that for a few years, Mom, uh, you you lose your immunity you do. <laughs> because yeah. I have well lost it. Uh, there are almost no mosquitoes in Toronto unless you get around someone who has a, a a paint can or something in their yard that's full of water. I I don't I can't stand them anymore. <laughs> I guess I better. I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, now, when it comes to things that you eat, 
There's the man, some a wild turnip. Yeah, prairie turnip. Yeah. Um, so it was historically uh, like a fairly important um, food source for people in this area, and um, it does have like a big starchy tuber, um, mm-hmm. and it. It's one of those plants that's been over harvested, so it's not very common oh. anymore. There's there's no native plants in Manitoba that are, at least in the prairie region, that are as common as they were historically. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is one that was definitely has been over harvested and, and it's not a heavy seed producer. Um, it's one that I've been working on propagating, and it's it's an interesting one because the seeds germinate very reliably. Um, they're not hard to germinate, um, but they are fairly slow growing and they don't love being transplanted, so they're a little bit tricky to to get them to like to a productive size in the ground. Um, so I love the idea of being able to produce so many of them that I'd actually be able to like harvest them to eat. Um, right. But at this point, I'm still at the point in, in the development process of, of just trying to get seed stock going. Are they? Also, so those are like really cute little plants. They're like all silvery and they have just a really rich blue little flower. Are they the same as the turnips that are commercially produced? I mean, are they the same species? No, not at all. No, they're actually, um, they, they're a legume. Like they're in the pea family. Oh, okay. Yeah. Can you eat the peas as well? No, they're, no, they're like, they're a very hard seed. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but, they're, but they're nitrogen fixers. And what do they taste like? The, uh, the root? I don't actually know. I've never <laughs> tried them. Yeah. Right? The thing is like, because you can't, You'd have yeah. to kill the plant to eat the root, right? Yeah. Um, and we don't have enough of them yet that I'm willing to to harvest any in that sense. Um, still trying to work on getting them established enough that I can harvest enough seeds off of them to build up a seed stock that I can grow lots more of them and eventually someday I'll be able to, <laughs> to try yeah. them. That's fair enough. When it comes to vines, you have um, one clem- clematis or clematis. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we grow, it's, uh, the common name is Western Virgin's Bower, mm-hmm. and um, it's a very vigorous plant. Um, it grows, if you're looking to like cover a fence, that could be a good option. It will it will rapidly and thickly <laughs> cover a fence. Um, it is one that um, kind of self-propagates very easily in that wherever, wherever the woody stem touches the ground, it has potential to grow adventitious roots. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes it very easy to divide, but also sometimes means that there's some some maintenance required if you don't want it to take over too much of, of your space. Um, but I mean, that that behavior could have some functionality in terms of being used as like a ground cover. If you had like a steep slope or something like that, you're looking to establish or to um, to stabilize a, a situation that might be prone to erosion, um, having like a really vigorous plant that's going to just blanket it and put down a bunch of roots all over the place um, could be really useful. Um, and it is, it's a beautiful plant too. It's, it's really lush. It has lots of, lots of, and just a, a nice kind of dark green leaf, um, has lots of small white flowers. Um, it is a, it is a plant that has separate male and female plants. Um, so we actually only have female plants here. So we, we do all of ours. We just, um, divide them and do them vegetatively. Um, so they don't actually form seed heads, but I, I believe they do or have the potential to form, um, seed heads that are kind of like that classic clematis wispy seed head, um, and yeah, they're the birds really love nesting in them because they're such thick cover. And um, yeah, they're 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 a cool plant. Yeah, and they get a pretty little flower. Yeah, they get covered in, in really cute yeah. little white flowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's another one that I've got to get. <laughs> but I don't know if I'll have a big enough yard for it. I planted a silver lace vine in in my teeny tiny Toronto yard when oh about twenty years ago. Man, that thing took over. <laughs> Everybody loved it, but it took over and we had to chop it down. Now I built a, per- a pergola and I put on one post, I put a silver lace vine and on another post, I put a wisteria and thought, well, I'll let them battle it out. Well, the silver lace vine took over while the wisteria was kind of going, oh, I don't know about this. Yeah. <laughs> we finally got rid of the silver lace vine and the wisteria has taken over. These are two well-growing plants, let's just say, if not invasive here. But yeah, I feel like that's that's kind of the, the nature of vines. I feel like once they once they settle in and are happy, sometimes they just really take off. Like wild right. cucumber. Yeah, wild cucumber. Um, is that wild? Is that native to Manitoba? It is. Yeah, and I think I'm. It's not one that I grow, but um, I'm not sure if it's not an annual. Actually, um, I'm not 100 percent sure it, about that. But. It sort of seeds. It does the same thing that impatience do. The seeds explode. 
Oh, okay. Everywhere. It's so very- you you are specifically only doing um, perennials, is that correct? Yeah, we do one one annual, which is an impatient. It's a, we call it touch yeah. me not um, because yeah. when you touch the pods, the seeds pop um, and they explode everywhere. Um, but yeah, that's the only annual that we grow. But it, it's not because of anything against annuals. It's just because most of the native plants in Manitoba are perennials. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're definitely like there are annuals, but a lot of them are perennial. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, let me see. You've got helianthus. Is that the one? There are two. There's the, okay. Is that the one with the root that you can eat, the Jerusalem artichoke? Yeah. So Jerusalem artichoke is a native plant. Um, It's one that um, I'm experimenting with a little bit right now. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not one that I currently sell, but um, there has been people have inquired about it. So I'm I'm working on growing it. It grows naturally on the property here and actually at the new place that we're moving to as well. I, I always like to, whenever I start propagating a new plant, before I start selling it, I like to grow it out for a few years just to trial it and just see who it is and what it does in the landscape and how it behaves so that I can, you know, appropriately share that knowledge with anybody else who wants to plant it. So Jerusalem artichoke is one that um, seems to have a reputation in gardens as being very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you plant it, it's hard to get rid of it. Um, so it's one that you want to be committed to. But I mean, a plant that produces food that grows itself very easily is kind of an exciting thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's one that I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. In a shady area. It's pretty happy. I mean, it doesn't yeah. spread too much. Yeah. And you know, I've even heard of people, um, the folks at, um, at Louis real house, they had it growing in a, like in a barrel planter. Um, yeah. and they, I don't think they did anything to special to, to cover it for the winter. I think it was just under snow mm-hmm. and they had great survival. Um, so that's kind of a fun way to do things too. If you've got plants exactly. that are maybe want to contain them a little bit but um but yeah that's not sorry I was going to say I'm sure you have bee balm yes we do yeah 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 we we call it wild bergamot but yeah Minarda Minarda fistulosa um, or bee balm yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) totally yeah um that's actually one of my favorites as well and I love it because um like it's a beautiful plant through the summer um and the flowers are very cool and they're very attractive to different kinds of like butterflies and hummingbirds and things like that. And they're edible too. Um, they have a good kind of spicy kick to them. Um, but I like it for its year round interest. Like it, it, it's very like solid plant in that it has like strong stems um, and the seed heads are very round. Um, so over the winter, it, it looks like little lollipops just sticking out of the snow mm. and that's adorable. Mm. Um, and then they hold their seeds pretty good too, which is nice. Cause then there's some, some <laughs> as a seed producer, um, there's some <laughs> plants that um, you really have to be on top of, because if you, if you don't harvest them before they shatter or before they you know pop, then, um, then they're gone. Um, bags over any of them for because I've heard that as a method for, collecting some of these wild buckwheat seeds um i haven't done any seed collecting that way but i mean we're it's part of what we do we're out in the field every day and harvesting. Yeah. We're, we're pretty on top of you're, it you but yeah i mean if, if you, but yeah for someone who's like working and, and busy and stuff like that and, and yeah, that might be a, a good way to do it so that you don't miss miss that window yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, hold on hold on hold on because it's time to take it oh no <laughs> yeah, we'll be back in just a minute if you like music of yesteryear and enjoy podcasts, we have something for you. Lifestyles 55 Digital Radio is bringing back the memories, the music, and the charismatic style from DJ's past. Visit whatsupwinnipeg.ca and enjoy the sounds, the laughter, and the conversation. We were just talking about commonality, Kelly. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I think that um, we were talking about how a lot of these native plants, you can find them in ditches. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, uh, it's a wonderful thing that ditches are a good habitat um, or a potentially good habitat. But a lot of the time, I think that these plants aren't growing in ditches because this is the best habitat for them. More so, it's the only habitat for them that's left. Um, because so much of our land has been developed and cultivated, um, they've lost a lot of their habitat. And so this is one of those, one of those bits of space that's left that has, that doesn't regularly get, you know, it gets mowed, but it doesn't get a lot of other maintenance other than that. Um, and so that is an okay situation for the plants to grow in. 
And, um, but what, what sort of a byproduct of that is that I think it gives people this false sense of how common native plants really are, because if you can drive for an hour down the highway and see native plants all along the road or all these wildflowers lining the highway, it kind of makes you feel like wildflowers are all over the place. You just saw them for an hour straight. There's a hundred kilometers of them. Um, But the reality is that they're only growing in that, you know, 20 or 30 feet from the road. But beyond that, it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be fields of, it'll be, you know, yards in the city or it'll be cultivated fields. um, And it's not that there's, you know, what about rural plants, though? Are there any natural plants um, in Manitoba that grow best on disturbed soil? Yeah, there that are. Yeah. yeah, there definitely are plants that um, that thrive in, in disturbed sort of conditions. And actually, fireweed is one of them. Um, fireweed is a plant that doesn't like a lot of competition. And so it's called fireweed because you you see it after a fire, once a forest fire has gone through, um, and cleared out all of the competition, then it's like my time to shine and it just pops up. And then you see these masses and masses of of fireweed. Um, and it's a, it's an interesting plant because it it does produce a lot of seed and it's very tiny little seeds that have like these long silky strands. So they, they blow around a lot. And so I imagine there's probably a pretty good seed bank of fireweed in lots of places, um, so they're ready for those situations when the, when there is that disturbance, they're ready to come um, and grow after it. Um, but they also spread a lot by root. Um, and it's amazing how fast they spread by root. Um, and they're, they're, I know, I really like fireweed. I'm very fond of it. Um, it makes me think of my mom. And um, we've planted them at her house. And uh, we planted one pot of fireweed. And now maybe, you know, five years later, it's probably, it's probably a 15 to 20 foot section <laughs> alongside oh, of our well. fireweed. Okay. Can you describe fireweed to me? Cause I want to see if it's what I think it is. Okay. So it's a fairly tall plant and it has spikes mm-hmm. of uh, pink flowers and it's like a rich pink, sometimes verging onto purple um, and long, narrow green leaves. Um, it has a little bit of red in the stem sometimes. And you do see it growing in massive because it grows in colonies and they're often okay. connected by the roots. Um, so this yes, is, there's a, a well-known picture, I think of a polar bear um, and that's fireweed, isn't it? Yes. Okay, yeah, it does. That's what it I grows, thought it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it does. It has a quite a huge range and it does grow quite far north. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a cool plant too. Like lots of parts of it are edible. You can use the leaves for salad. When a sprouts come up in spring, you can steam them and eat them like asparagus. Um, I've read about people using like the pith of the stem as like a stew thickener. Um, oh, cool. I've made fireweed jelly from the flowers the last two years and it's fantastic. Um, it's delicious and beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful pink color. I'll bet. Mm-hmm. And bees love it too. Um, and also um, leaf cutter bees like fireweed mm-hmm. because they, they'll they cut little chunks of the leaves out and they use that to line their nests in the ground when they lay their eggs and, and gather their food for their, their offspring in the ground. So if you see little very circular cutouts on the leaves yeah. of fireweed, that's, that's from leaf cutter bees. And it's not really harming the plant or anything like that. It's not like a huge pest problem. It's just kind of a, right. a neat interaction. I we're talking see- about the, the importance of those uh, road allowances and, and what we call ditches. And it brings to mind the fact that that's what happened to uh, the milkweed when they started mm-hmm. using glyphosate yeah. in the fields here. It killed off the ditch, you know, the ditches, and that's really where the endangerment of the butterflies. And this is in the U.S. mainly. Um, well, of course, uh, for- farmers don't care for milkweed. Yeah. So actually, milkweed yeah. is there's there's uh, seven different species of milkweed that are native in Manitoba. We sell three of them. Um, two of them are on the weed list, so we're not allowed to sell them, even though they're really great plants. Um, the they're on the weed list because of because there's economic clout behind agriculture, and farmers don't really want a lot of milkweed in their in their pastures because it can be harmful to livestock, um, and they don't really want a lot of competition for anything that's growing in their monoculture crops. And um, and so yeah, the the Common milkweed and showy milkweed, which are both fairly aggressive spreading plants by root. Um, those are the ones that are on the weed list. Um, so I'm not allowed to sell them, um, even though they are great. Oh, beautiful. Plants. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. They smell really good. They're important habitat for monarch butterflies and lots of other species as well. Um, Ontario, a few years ago, took all milkweeds off their off their weed list because of, of this connection with the monarch butterflies Woo-hoo. and the fact that they're important for endangered species. Um, and I would love to see that happen in Manitoba. Manitoba did revamp their weed list a few years ago. So it's, um, it's a tiered system now. So, um, I think it's somewhat complaint driven if you have to do something about it, but, um, I I think also there's a disconnect too. Like if you, if you're growing common milkweed in your urban backyard, it's not going to be a problem for anybody's cows. Right. Right. And I don't see how any 
native plant can be a weed? I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah. Uh, we were talking um, to another fellow last week and he was fascinating. Um, but here's a point on which I think we disagree, which is that I don't think a native plant can be invasive. Yeah, this, the term invasive is a little bit tricky because it kind of, there's, I think, two different ways to understand it. Um, so within the realm of gardening, we often use the, the term invasive to mean like, an, like to, to refer to the, the spreading habit of a plant. So if a plant mm -hmm. spreads rapidly in your garden, we'll call it invasive. Um, but it's, it's just a spreading plant. Um, whereas like from an ecological perspective, an invasive species is one that doesn't exist here naturally. And when it's brought here these days, typically by people, often inadvertently, although within the realm of horticulture, a lot of our invasive species have been introduced through the horticulture industry for use as ornamentals, and then they escape and um, kind of take off. And because they haven't been part of this ecosystem for very long, there isn't sort of the checks and balances to keep them um, in balance with everything else. So they they don't have the same pests and diseases and predators to, to kind of keep them um, at a balanced level in the population. And so they can really outcompete native, native vegetation. And, and so that's in that sense, from an ecological sense, a, a native plant can't be invasive within its own range. It would be an introduced alien exotic species that, that would have, that would be invasive. Um, but yeah, the term invasive is a tricky one. And there's yeah, lots it of is. It around is. it. I have one I want to introduce, evening primrose. Mm. You sell that? Yeah. I don't sell it yet, but I'm working on that one. Um, yeah, it's I've got some seeds for it, and I'm I'm going to play around with it and see if I can get it going. I think my I believe it's a biennial, um, and so it, but it's it has popped up on the property now and then, um, and so probably cool. the birds just bring it in. Um, and it's beautiful. It's a very tall spike of, of flowers, and yeah, it's it's pretty. I'm kind of I'm excited about growing it. <laughs> you don't grow blueberries. I don't grow blueberries. I have been experimenting with blueberries. I have had no luck with germinating blueberries. Um, and I was kind of resistant for a while to the idea of growing blueberries just because um, it's the wrong place there. There's yeah, exactly. There's not a lot of people. People love blueberries and love eating blueberries and picking blueberries. But um, most urban backyards are not going to be great habitat for blueberries. The soil is just not going to be right. And you can amend it. You can try and tweak it and stuff like that. So it is possible. But um for a long time, I was resistant to the idea just because I was like, I don't want to set people up for failure. You know, I you don't want to provide them something that's not going to survive. It's very survive. alkaline soil and it likes more acidity. So mm -hmm. yeah. that's the biggest challenge we have here. And, you know, people say, oh, you can amend the soil. Well, that only goes so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, but you can okay. grow them in pots, perhaps. Maybe. Yeah. And I, you know, so, I, and I am experimenting with growing them too, because you know, lots of people have cabins and there's lots of different situations. Yeah, yeah. They might work just because they might not be great to grow in Winnipeg. Doesn't mean there's no in Manitoba that you can grow them because obviously they grow in the wild here and there are lots of places that are suitable for them. So they're, they're what I'm playing with. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We used to go and pick blueberries, so many blueberries in the white shell when mm -hmm. I was a kid. Uh, but if you found a, if you found a rich vein, my grandfather would just sit there all day and just pick barrel after barrel of them or bucket after bucket. Oh yeah. I hiked the Ontario trail a couple of years ago and I went in August and the trail was just lined with blueberries and it was amazing. Really? It was so good. <laughs> That's fabulous. Um, when it comes to uh, shrubs, there's the, oh, pin cherries. There are a bunch of different prunus shrubs that are uh, native to Manitoba do all prunus, are all prunus edible? All cherries and plums wild? That's a good question. Um, the ones that I have encountered, I would say yes. Um, we grow a few different prunus species. So we do, um, we do Western sand cherries, we do wild plums, we do pin cherries, we do... Um, we don't do choke cherries, but they're also a native one. Um, I feel like I'm missing one as well. Um, yes, but I'm not sure if there's other ones that we don't grow that aren't edible. But all the ones that you supply are edible? Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. But you have to be very determined. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them, yeah. I mean, like choke cherries. We don't, we don't sell choke cherries, but they, um, but they are a very heavy producer. Um, and they're not super great to just like eat them, but, um, but they're great in preserves and, and jellies and jams and stuff like that or syrups. Mm -hmm. um, Talking about asparagus, it makes me think of asparagus. Do you mm -hmm. sell asparagus? 
We don't sell asparagus. So my, I, to my understanding, asparagus is not a native plant in Manitoba, but it is one that is naturalized. You can it definitely find it in the wild. Because I've found it growing, um, but I've never actually looked it up. It grows on the riverbanks here. Yeah, yeah, it grows little berries, and I think the birds eat them and spread them around, and it seems yeah. to be hardy enough that it's able to survive our winters and does okay here. And oh. yeah, so that's kind of a, a fun one that um, if you're into foraging, wild asparagus would be a neat one. But it's, I, I don't believe it is a native plant. But I think it's well, just a, yeah, that's quite possible because a lot naturalized. of things have naturalized, and we you know we sort of take them for granted now. But uh... <laughs> yeah, and it's an interesting thing when you introduce a plant, you never know how it's going to yeah. settle into the environment, right? Like a wild asparagus, like I wouldn't call that an invasive species. It's naturalized. It's not out competing in the native vegetation or anything like that. And, um, but you never know when you introduce a species, if it's going to be similar to wild asparagus or if it's going to be like purple loosestrife, you know? Well, I was really surprised to find it growing well, but you know, the, the other one we haven't talked about is echinacea, um, you know, mm-hmm. coneflower. And there are several mm-hmm. types of corn, coneflower. That, so uh, talk about those a little bit because there's quite a few varieties that grow here. Yeah, that's right. So in Manitoba, there's only one species that's native, um, which is Echinacea angustifolia. So it's an, a narrow leaf coneflower. Um, and it's one that we are able to grow here in our area, like north of Sel- or around Selkirk. Um, but it's not typically found in this part of the province. Um, it's more of a Western species. It tends yeah. to prefer more gravelly, sandy kind of soils. Like you might find it more around like the Brandon area. Um but it does grow okay here. Some years it doesn't love life if it's really wet, um, but it's been great the last couple of years during this drought situation. Um, it's been thriving around here, which is, you know, that's a, that the joy of diversity. Something's always going to thrive. And um, it's one of the, it has a reputation for being um, one of the most potent medicinal plants and or of the, of the echinacea varieties. Um, but I think that um, there's lots of varieties of echinacea that are not native to Manitoba that are available through the horticulture industry. And um, echinacea purpurea, I think, is usually kind of the mm-hmm. base species that yeah, a lot of the cultivars yeah, yeah. come from, um, which is native just like a little bit south of here. And um, yeah, I think they they can be pretty hardy. I think some of the cultivated varieties are like somewhat questionably hardy. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and I think but that echinacea really offers a, a good example of... Um, why, if you're cons- if you're if you're interested in ecological gardening, why it's beneficial to work with native plants versus some of the cultivated variety? Yeah. Um, because the I, the way that I think about this is that nature breeds plants for nature. It breeds plants to function within a system, so they're part of um, the environment. Um, so they function like within the the temperature and climate conditions, but they also function within the community of other species that are that are there. And so they you know whether that is plants that are, or other species that are eating them or um, or benefiting from the, the pollen and nectar that they offer. So they're part of a system and, and nature breeds plants to function within that system. I think that people breed plants for people. Um, and so we like things that are new and different mm-hmm. and unique. Um, and so we're breeding things for different colors or different sizes or extra petals. And when you start manipulating the form of the plant like that, um, it can interfere with the interactions that it might have with other living things in the environment. So, for example, some of the different colors of plants um, might be harder for pollinators to find. They might not exist, like they just might actually not see them as well. Um, Or if you have plants that have a bunch of extra petals involved, then sometimes they actually interfere with with an insect's ability to actually access the resources of, of that plant. Um, and so that is definitely something that I see within the, the cone yeah. flowers that are available on the market is there's lots well, that are. When I mentioned cone flowers, I wasn't particularly thinking of echinacea because there's a whole bunch mm-hmm. of different wildflowers that, grow, that are called cone flowers. So that's really what I was referring to in terms oh, okay, of sure. various, various varieties. So tell yes, yeah. the others. This is a good point. Yes, about the the, the yeah. confusion around common names. Yeah. Because um, coneflower, yeah, I guess it refers to sort of a, a form of flower. Um, but there's lots of different kinds of plants that we call coneflowers that yeah. are completely unrelated to each other that are in different genuses or genera, I guess. Um, yes, yeah, so like echinacea, we call that purple coneflower. Um, the rudbeckia, sometimes. Uh, um, there's species of rudbeckia that are called coneflowers. Like we grow a tall coneflower. It's rudbeckia lisiniata. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also retibita species. We grow retibita columnifera, which we call prairie coneflower. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's lots of different kinds that, um, and that it can definitely create confusion. <laughs> For sure. Let me ask you about the, uh, what do you call them? You have uh, groups of plants that you sell together? 
Yeah, we do some different garden collections. Yeah. Garden uh-huh. collections. So you have one for the birds and one for the butterflies. And I was went thinking about buying them. Um, and if you plant uh, a collection, does it bloom from spring until fall? We do try and, and get a good diversity of plants in there mm-hmm. so that there will be continual blooms throughout the season. Yes. Um, yeah, we try and plan them carefully so that we've got spring, summer, and fall interest. Um, most of the garden collections also have a few grasses in them. Um, and yeah, like, they, like you say, they're kind of themed collections. So we've got like a garden for the butterflies. So that includes species that are host plants for a variety of different butterflies. So food for the caterpillars, but also have a variety of different nectar plants that will be food for all kinds of different adult butterflies. Um, and then we've got like a bird garden collection that has lots of different species that are going to create good um, seed resources for birds and also maybe good nesting habitat. Um, so yeah, we try to, and then the, the garden collections also come with a planting plan. So we try and make it nice and easy for people to just have like a very easy native plant garden. And um, yeah, it does take them a couple of years to establish if they're, they're all native plants. So they're going to take a little while before they reach their full size and form. And, and then once they're established, they'll be good for a good long time. Are they good sellers? Yeah, they're pretty popular, actually. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is um, yeah, I, I like that they're a thing that we offer. Um, because I think when you're, when you're excited about native plants or, or gardening in general, it can be a little bit overwhelming about where to start and how to do it and how to plan it so it's going to look good and function. And so this is a nice, easy way to just like kind of check off all the boxes and mm-hmm. doesn't require a lot of extra planning. And um, it's a good, easy way to learn about native plants and to just make it a very enjoyable experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I noticed that in your uh, recommended books, you had uh, Piet Udolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about him for a minute and how he fits in with the native plants. Of course, he he grew a lot of native plants um, wherever he was uh, designing gardens. But right, yeah, I, so- I never see plantings uh, in this style. Okay. Yeah. So Pete Rudolph, he's a, he's, if you're interested in garden design, he's a, a cool, cool guy to look into. He's part of this I, um, group called the, well, the, the movement is the new perennialist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's got a few good quotes that I like quite a lot, um, but he's very, he's interested in, in the form of the plant um, and about how plants should look in a garden throughout the entire year. Right like this matrix planting where you have different kind of groups of plants and then you've got interest plants. Um, he does a lot of like mass plantings where you've got big swaths of a certain thing. Um, one of, one of those quotes that I really like is that um, a plant is only worth growing if it looks good dead. Um, yeah. And it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in Manitoba or, or situations where, where you're not growing year round, he, he doesn't really mean dead. He means dormant. Um, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> You know, we think of the gardening season as being spring and summer and a little bit into fall, but we're in Manitoba year round. Um, And so if we can enjoy our outdoor spaces year round um, or plant things in such a way that they still offer a little bit of movement or texture or interest through the whole year. um, And then it, it makes that plant more enjoyable, too, because you get like there it's exciting to just see the plant sprout in spring and watch it grow and then you get to see it flower but then also mm-hmm. to to appreciate the beauty of the seed head and the, and the plant after it has died back and the colors that they turn in the fall um there's all these different elements besides just like flower color and height you know so and what brings us to to uh, this winter grasses, grasses and reeds oh, okay because, you know there are people in Kent and Manitoba are always looking for grasses that are perennial uh, what are some of the varieties that you uh, suggest? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've got lots of grasses that I really like a lot. I, I appreciate that grasses are becoming more popular and appreciated in, in gardening because they they definitely do have their own um, their own beauty, their own interest. Um, one of my favorite ones is big bluestem, which is actually Manitoba's provincial grass. Um, and it would have been one of the most common grasses in the tall grass prairie. Um, it's a warm season grass, so it takes a little while to get going in spring. And then it shoots up in the heat of the summer and it gets in a wet year. It gets pretty tall. It'll get like five, six feet tall, even taller than that. Um, and if you go further south, um, like big bluestem grows from like Texas all the way up to Manitoba. Um, and if you go further south, like I was in um, a few years ago, I was visiting some native plant nurseries and, and prairie preserves. Um, in Minnesota and Wisconsin and big bluestem down there was like eight feet tall. It was wild. Um, so ours doesn't get that tall, but, um, but it's this beautiful color. It's got this nice, like rich purpley red in the fall. Like it's beautiful seed heads. They're, another name for it is turkey foot grass. Cause the seed heads look kind of like a turkey footprint. 
Um, and then it, um, it's a clump grass. A lot of the native grasses are clump grasses. So they're just going to stay in a bunch or a clump. They don't, there, there are some species that spread by rhizomes and, and will, um, will spread that way, but a lot of them don't, um, which makes it very nice if you want to include them. Like they, they work in a formal setting, like in an informal garden, they'll stay where you put them. Um, yeah. And there's, there's warm season grasses that or slow to get going in the spring. They warm, they, once it's warm, they'll really take off and then they get good colors in the fall. Um, but then there's also cool season grasses, which will green up early in the season and they get their seed heads earlier in the year. So one of my favorite cool season grasses that I think is a little bit underloved um, is green needle grass. It doesn't have like a really stunning seed head, but it's just a very nice upright plant and it ha- it just captures any bit of wind and it's very mm-hmm. graceful. It always just kind of like flows back and forth and um, yeah, so I like that one a lot. Um, but they, yeah, there's a whole spectrum too. Like the, the little guys, like the sheep fescue and June grass are only going to be about a foot tall um, all the way up to, yeah, things like, like sergastrum and big blue stem. They're going to be like five, six feet tall. Um, and there's a whole spectrum in between and they each kind of have their different different colors and textures and seed heads. And they're great for birds as well. Um, a few years ago in the spring, it was as the spring migration was coming up, um, I was watching birds in the backyard and they were, they would, ha- they would land on a, on a like a stem from like last year's growth um, on a, on a grass. Um, they would land like halfway up the stem and then they would hop up the stem so that it would make the seed head fall and they uh-huh. would just like, ride it down to the ground and then they'd pin it down and they would pick all the seeds off. And it was uh-huh. so fun to watch. <laughs> and I think they play too. Mm-hmm. birds and yeah. animals. I, I think a lot of what they're doing is they're just playing. I mean, I, in this case they were feeding, but I think they, they get enjoyment out of it. I There's so much so. we have left to learn about animals. Yeah. And that's a good point too, about like, um, yeah, how, how, you know, animals interact with, with plants and things like that. And like, I think we, we tend to think of birds as being nesting in trees or shrubs, mm-hmm. but tr- historically in the prairie, there weren't a lot of trees and shrubs around. So most mm-hmm prairie grassland birds nest on the ground and, and clump grasses create really great shelter for them. Um, they create little, you know, nooks and little, little bits of, hab- of, of um, space for them to, to create their nests right on the ground, um, which is really important for lots of, lots of prairie, prairie birds that don't have those, those resources for nesting anymore. We often get birds nesting like in our seed beds um, and occasionally right on our benches, like in the pots of plants that we have there for like for sale. Uh-huh. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's happened a few years. Usually we notice when we're watering and then we just kind of like rope it off and sacrifice those plants and don't water the nest. And then, you know, for okay. A couple I was wondering then. if you, if you had to pay extra for a plant with a bird in it or. <laughs> no, we, uh, no, we, we usually just try and leave them. They, it's amazing how fast it happens. Actually, like, it could be yeah. like two or three weeks from the time the first egg is laid until like they fledge from the nest. Um, maybe a little bit longer than that sometimes, but depending on the species and the weather, but um, yeah, we just leave them be and just kind of leave them, leave them in peace. And, and they're great to have around because they're eating lots of different bugs that, um, not, aren't necessarily problems, but, um, if they're, if there's not a, a real boom in the population of a particular caterpillar or, or other beetle or something that might be eating the plants, then, um, we don't mind sharing the plants and letting them be eaten a little bit and but they all just kind of keep each other in balance. So it's, I always, always plant we don't have a lot of pest problems. I always plant parsley for the black swallowtail. I love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> okay, there's one more thing. You have some, you offer two different kinds of um, plant pots. There's a four-inch pot, but then your cell packs. Mm-hmm. Where did you, they're five to a cell pack and they open up? Yeah. So the, the product that we use for growing containers are called root trainers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do come in like a booklet, like it, it does open like a book. Um, I, they were developed actually in Canada for, for tree production for the, for, um, for the forestry industry. Um, but I really like them for growing native plants because they, they have like, they're a deep cell, like they're about four inches deep, um, which is really handy for us because then we don't have to be watering them like twice a day. Um, which right. is great because we grow, we, we start a few things inside, but we do most of our growing outside. I don't have a greenhouse. I use some cold frames and I grow a lot of stuff just outside. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's really great to not have to be constantly watering everything and they have a bit of depth to them. Um, and then they, you know, they're a reasonably well-established plant when you plant them and the plugs are super fast and easy to plant. Um, and they're very, they're very space efficient for us, um, mm-hmm. for growing them. And, um, and the containers are also reusable, which is really awesome because a lot of plastic, black plastic is not recyclable and a lot of horticultural plastics don't get reused. Um, but we try to reuse as much as we can. Um, and the other thing that I like about them is that they, 
yeah, have, it, it's kind of two price points, um, which is nice for people. If you're looking to do a larger planting, it kind of is helpful to, to ex- extend your budget by being able to get more plants because they're a little bit cheaper than the, than the larger four and a half inch pots. Um, mm-hmm. And also we, we use peat as our growing mix, which I have, um, I have some internal conflict about that. Um, and it's something that I'm, I'm looking at getting away from. I have some ideas about how that might go and it's going to be a, a lot, it'll be a, you know, is the process is going to take some time and experimentation. Um, but in the meanwhile, I like that I can grow a decent sized plant with a quite a small amount of peat. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes me feel like it's an okay way to do things. Okay. I have one final question. I don't know if you have any more, mom. Um, you don't have anything to do in the winter then. What do oh, you do? I, I keep so busy in the winter. There's never enough okay. winter for all my winter projects. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we, um, we're growing stuff outside from, you know, April until November. Um, we, well, things that we've got plants outside until November, we, we do overwinter a lot of our stock. So, um, as soon as it, as soon as the pots are frozen, um, and ideally before it snows too much, um, we'll put them into winter storage. We put them in a big stack and we cover them with straw and then we hope that it it snows on top of that. Um, this year, (laughs) this last winter we had to, um, the pots weren't frozen before it snowed. So we had to dig them out of the snowbank so that they would freeze because the snow was insulating them. And we want them to be sort of gently frozen before we put them into winter storage so that they don't rot in storage. So we do want them to be frozen, but not like minus 40 frozen, just gently frozen. Um, so yeah, once I put the plants away into, into winter storage, I kind of get going on, on plans for the next year already. So um, we do like we do wholesale to a few different nurseries. So I kind of look at all my inventory from the last year and I um, put together my my wholesale availability list. I send that out. Mm-hmm. I start doing my seeding plans. I start doing my potting plans. I organize my um, organize my supply orders. Uh, I update my website. I put together my catalog. Um, and then starting in like December and January, we're already back to seeding. Um, so a lot of our plants need to be stratified. So they need that cool moist treatment of at least six weeks. Um, okay. so spend a, lot, a good chunk of the winter seeding. And, um, and then there's little plants to look after and maintain, which takes some time. Um, and then I got to get all my staff lined up for the next year. And um, so you're not yeah, busy at all. Plus, you have other projects. There's, there's <laughs> other business planning, and I'm trying to move to this new property. So there's lots of organizing to do around all of that and uh, accounting and financial stuff, all that stuff. There's. I thought you were going to say you go to Costa Rica. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> maybe someday. I have a dream that maybe someday, I think for like four to six weeks in like November, December, I might be able to get away. Mm-hmm. Are there other, computer work where it's warm somewhere maybe are there other companies like yours across canada is there an association uh no um no association um there's like the the native plant industry in canada is like i i would say quite underdeveloped um in manitoba there's two native plant nurseries that do plant production there's a, a few other seed producers as well um but not enough to meet the demand um yeah. that there is there's definitely a, a niche to fill there i'd say and um there's not a lot of native plant nurseries in Saskatchewan or Alberta either. Um, we do get people who in the past have ordered plants from, from us, from Saskatchewan and Alberta, um, which is kind of wild to think that they couldn't get them any closer yeah. than, than having to order them from Manitoba. Um, yeah. And I think we're, we're kind of a unique business anyways, like um, a lot of organizing, like a lot of companies in the horticulture realm will do like, um, like, wholesale production where they do like lots of production and they sell that to retailers. Um, or you might be like a production retailer nursery where you are, you know, growing your own stuff to, or growing all yeah. the stuff that you've got from someone else um, to sell um, at like a little garden center. Um, or you might do like more like woody field grown stock, doing more trees and shrubs, um, or you might do seed production. Um, but we kind of do all of those things. Um, wow. and, and we don't use a greenhouse, which is also kind of unusual. Mm-hmm. Shauna, are there any in Ontario? I guess there are a couple, but they're, they're not everywhere. Yeah. I think there's, there's getting to be more in Ontario. I think, especially in Southern Ontario, I, yeah. I've heard a few more cop, cropping up in the last few years, which is awesome. I think if there could be 10, a minimum of 10 native plant nurseries in every province in Canada, I think that would only be a good thing. I think more people would, would grow native plants in their gardens if they were more easily accessible. Right. Um, so if you're looking yeah. across the country, folks, you can always get in touch with Kelly. Because most things that will grow in Manitoba will grow in most places in Canada, not all, but in most. So it's always worth a shot. Yeah, and our, our website, we do list like the, the native range of, mm-hmm. of each of the species that we grow. Um, although I would still encourage people to get things as local to them as possible, because like, for example, right. a, a hairball that comes from seed from BC is going to 
grow best in BC um, and a hairball that comes from seed that has been, you know, has a love family lineage of, of, of uh, growing in Manitoba for hundreds or thousands of years. Um, they're going to continue to grow best in Manitoba. They're, they're more locally adapted. So even though they're the same species and they, they could grow in those different places and they do grow in those different species, in those different places, um, there is something to be said for the benefit of, of locally adapted genetics. If they can find them, but if not, how do they, how do they reach you, Kelly? What's the name is Prairie Originals, right? Prairie Originals. Yep. Um, yep. So we're prairieoriginals.com. Um, we, we do ship seeds where I'm taking a break this year from shipping live plant material. It's gotten a little bit complicated in the last couple of years with, mm-hmm. oh, with lots of things um, have made it a little bit more complicated and difficult. So I'm just taking a break this year. Um, we'll see if we can get back to it in future years um, or if we can find a, a better way to, to get plants rather than shipping them in the post um, or, with, or with couriers. Um, but um but I think a really great solution would be for more native plant nurseries to just start up. Um, and, and that's something like, you know, if, if someone wanted, like, I don't know, I'd be very open to teaching people how to grow native plants so they could start a, a native plant nursery in their own, in their own area. Well, that's um, the deal. I don't think many people want to shut, will turn down if they're interested in, in native plants. So I'm very yeah, glad and there to do that. So many people interested in starting nurseries and yeah. seed things and all that. Uh, it sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Kelly. Thanks for, for the invitation. This has been a really fun conversation. Oh, I'd love really to have you back. You. Yeah. And uh, I want to thank you, Mum, for, uh, for being here and giving birth to me. And I want to thank the Government of Canada for uh, the funds to make this possible. Um, that's it for today. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, Sean. And thank you again, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you.